The KSTE Farm Hour is sponsored in part by Luna by Bear, superior efficacy on the most problematic diseases. Check out the difference at lunafungicides.com. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. Higher costs and undeliverable produce may come rolling down the highway towards you soon. Actually, they won't be rolling. There's an immediate shortage of trucks and truck drivers that threatens California's farmers this winter. We have the details. Farmers are awaiting the outcome of the latest round of NAFTA trade talks, imperiling our ag exports to Canada and Mexico. We have that report. The latest soil amendment making the rounds of California's farms is one of the oldest, biochar. What's that all about? We talk with the University of California biochar expert. All that, crop reports, and a lot more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. Don't be surprised to see food prices rise in 2018 from California's farms. Getting trucks to haul produce in California and across the nation is getting more and more difficult. Several different people in the produce industry told the Produce News that the current transportation shortages are as bad as they've ever seen at this time of the year. According to the Produce News, the next two weeks are going to be critical. If there aren't a lot more trucks out there in February, then there could be shortages all year. Some produce companies have never seen it like this in January. And costs are soaring. According to the USDA, truck rates for fresh food from California's Central Valley going eastward made a nearly 25% jump over prices for the same period last year. It's in all sectors of the economy, creating a greater demand for the movement of freight. That creates a shortage of equipment and higher rates using the basic economic principles of supply and demand. The increased demand and lack of equipment is especially impactful on the fresh produce industry. And then there's the shortage of truck drivers. Why is there a shortage of truck drivers? American Trucking Association Chief Economist Bob Costello says there are many reasons. We've got demographics issues. That includes age. The average age of a truck driver today is 49 years old versus 42 years old for all U.S. workers. We have a gender issue. All U.S. workers, women make up 47% of all U.S. workers, but only 6% of truck drivers. It's a lifestyle issue. Often it's a job of last resort. We have more job alternatives out there. Of course, regulations play into this, right? It reduces productivity and therefore, you know, it increases the driver shortage. And lastly, it's not easy to get a commercial driver's license. Many truckload fleets will pay the driver after they get the uh, CDL $150 to $200 a month until they recoup the cost of getting the CDL, but they still have to come up with it in, in advance, the money in advance for that. So there's many reasons. And then there are the challenges of hauling fresh produce itself. According to one trucking company official, truckers avoid produce loads if they have other high-priced hauls available. The sixth round of North American Free Trade Agreement talks are underway in Canada, and the American Farm Bureau Federation is looking to the talks as a way to modernize the agreement and improve on gains for U.S. ag. AFBF Senior Director of Congressional Relations Dave Salmonson says top trade officials are attending the talks this week and could tackle hard issues, including agriculture. How to deal with the high dairy tariffs in Canada, deal with some of the food safety standards issues that they're continuing to work on. We hope for improvements 
and approvals for biotechnology. So there's many issues to help modernize NAFTA. But as we've been saying, NAFTA has been very good for U.S. agriculture, for Canadian agriculture, for Mexican agriculture. Strong trade growth throughout the 23 years of the agreement, and we want that to continue. Salmonson is confident that trade negotiators will address issues important to agriculture. Our trade negotiators are well-versed, have been talked with Farm Bureau, other agricultural organizations continuously the past year about these issues, know what U.S. agriculture needs out of this agreement, understand what needs to be protected, what can be helped. And I think all three negotiating countries and negotiating teams have a strong appreciation for agriculture. Agriculture is such a big industry in all the countries. NAFTA negotiation rounds are scheduled through the spring. You can never predict when things are going to get wrapped up. The big issue in this whole negotiation has been about auto parts, rules of origin, manufacturing. I think if those issues could be dealt with, then I think the rest of the agreement could rapidly come to a close. Michael Clements, Washington. In the aftermath of California's severe wildfire season, rainstorms have added ash and debris to storm runoff. This could affect the regular stormwater samples required for wineries and breweries, and state water regulators have offered some partial relief as a result. At the request of farm and trade groups, wineries and breweries in wildfire zones will be allowed to show that constituents in their stormwater have been caused by debris, not their activities. One thing ranchers and landowners may not have thought about as something that could be very helpful prescribed burning. The processes generated from fire are unlike any other management strategy we have out there. We get benefits that herbicide can't compare to, that grazing can't compare to. Now, I'm not saying fire is your cure-all single bullet answer, but it does produce a lot of different nutrient responses, both below ground and above ground, that we don't see with any other management strategy. That was Morgan Russell at Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Service. If you can tweak your grazing management, to fit into a fire rotation, you're achieving the best of both worlds. If you can burn a pasture in a really hot summer fire and then defer it for one growing season afterwards, all you've done is just maximize your forage potential. Texan Pepe Martinez of USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service says there are many reasons landowners would want to carry out a prescribed burn. The first objectives would be to promote forage production, to improve the palatability, the digestive and the protein content of our grasses. Burning also promotes wildlife habitat by increasing the diversity of the plant species at the site. We're also going to help suppress brush. We're going to suppress prickly pear. We're going to control parasites. And a very important reason is to reduce significantly the chances of having a wildfire in that property and properties upwind. Sims Price and his father run several ranches scattered around the site. Mostly they're cow-calf operations. Prescribed fire is a very economical practice when you look at dollars per acre versus chemical treating or mechanical treating. We found that a combination of all three is actually the most effective. Frank Price, the father, says the benefits outweigh the risks. I'm not going to call it an art, but it takes a lot of diligence to make your burn safely. And it's one of the problems with burning. It takes so much time, so much planning. Thus, people don't get excited about it because it takes all that planning and whatnot. But done properly, it's worth every bit of the energy you put into it. Meanwhile, Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Services Russell again stresses the role prescribed burning plays in mitigating devastating wildfires. In my opinion, the best way to fight fire is with fire. So fire sometimes can be a good thing, as long as it's the right fire, in the right place, at the right time. To find out if this is right for you, contact your local NRCS office. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. 
Here's this week's California crop report. Recent rains benefited fields that were planted earlier in the season. The fields had signs of good growth. Most winter wheat has emerged and is growing well. Persistent fog and rain late last week reduced the need for irrigation. Shipment of corn seed were being received in preparation for spring planting. Alfalfa fields are being replanted with new rains, and previously planted alfalfa is growing well. Pruning continues in stone fruit orchards and vineyards. The persimmon harvest is ongoing. Some older, poorly producing orchards and vineyards are being removed and prepared for replanting. Winter dormant sprays are applied to some fruit and nut orchards. The navel orange harvest is ongoing. Pumelos were harvested. Olive growers continue to prune their groves. Pruning continues in the nut orchards as well. Some older orchards are being pushed out and the ground prepped for planting. Fields are being prepared and planted for winter vegetable crops, but activities have been slow due to wet soils. Lettuce continues to benefit from the recent damp weather, and growth looks ideal. Strawberries are growing well at roadside stands. Blueberries are still being brought in for planting. Previously planted onions have emerged. Spring carrots haven't emerged yet. Harvest for winter carrots is one week away. Beds continue to be prepared for tomatoes. Garlic stands were established and are growing well. Weed control is being done in organic onion fields. Rangeland and non-irrigated pasture are reported to be primarily in poor to very poor condition. Supplemental feeding of livestock is ongoing. Sheep grazed on idle cropland, on stubble field, and in dormant alfalfa fields. Beehives are around the almond orchards now in preparation for the almond bloom. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator such as iTunes. Californians like sweet potatoes, and the sweet potato likes California soil. The vast majority of the sweet potatoes grown in California hail from Merced County. There's about 80 growers, and currently sweet potatoes are ranked 40th of all California's agricultural commodities. Now, that may not be a very impressive number, but consider this. North Carolina is the leading sweet potato production state at 38% of U.S. production. The number two state, it's California, which produces 23% of all sweet potatoes grown in the U.S. A closer look at the numbers show why California is prime sweet potato country. In North Carolina, now remember they produce 38% of all the sweet potatoes grown in the United States. Their 2016 production, 11 million hundredweight. And that 11 million hundredweight came on 95,000 acres. Here in California, 7 million hundredweight of sweet potatoes were grown on one-fifth of the acreage that North Carolina uses. And why do sweet potatoes like California so much? It's the soil. Merced County's sandy soil is ideal growing grounds for the sweet potato. Bob Weimer is a Merced County sweet potato grower. He says there are very few pests and diseases that bother the sweet potato here. There's been very little pressure from uh, insects uh, or disease. The varieties that have been developed have all been very successfully tested against some of the major disease issues that we have. One of the things that we still fight with is, is the root knot nematode. We have some tolerance in some of the varieties to root knot nematode or to nematodes, but uh, we don't have a variety that's, uh, that's totally, that's completely resistant. And the sweet potato is considered one of the most nutritious vegetables that there is. Because of the newfound health interest in eating sweet potatoes, California acreage has zoomed up in the last 10 years by 50%.
It was created over 30 years ago by Congress in the wake of the farm crisis of the 1980s. So what is Farmer Mac? We work with about 700 rural community banks across the country, and we provide liquidity to those banks by purchasing the mortgages that they have with farmers. And Kurt Covington of Farmer Mac says that helps support local lenders, who in turn assist agribusinesses and rural economies. From the perspective of working with the rural community banks, we have an excellent partnership with them, and we continue to expand that relationship, even during the more difficult times as we're seeing today. One way Farmer Mac is supporting rural and community banks and financial lenders is via USDA Farm Service Agency Guaranteed Loans. We are the largest purchaser of guaranteed portion of USDA Guaranteed Loans. So if a local bank were to offer an FSA Guaranteed Loan to its borrower, Farmer Mac can purchase the guaranteed portion. So Kurt Covington, how does that help local lenders? That helps the community bank as we buy that 90% guaranteed portion and then give them liquidity for their balance sheet so they can go out and relend money. And it is not just about financing farmers and ranchers either. We will do BNI community centers and operating loans. We'll purchase those as well. So in the end, I think we kind of offer a full plate of opportunities for those rural bankers to provide liquidity for rural America. Now you may remember Covington noting the downturn in the farm economy of recent years due to low commodity prices. That in turn has narrowed, even created negative, margins for ag producers. Covington says, however, thanks to foresight by many farmers and ranchers. We continue to see good loans cross our desk. Many of these farmers came into this down cycle with very strong balance sheets, low leverage, good working capital, and I think many of them just saw the writing on the wall that we're going to have to preserve this. Meaning, yes, a rebalance of their balance sheets. However, with land value still up in places like the Midwest. We have just seen, from our perspective, a number of deals that are surprisingly good. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. The California Farm Bureau Federation reports that a two-year study is demonstrating that flooding alfalfa fields shows strong potential for refilling groundwater supplies. University of California specialists who conducted the study flooded fields near Davis, as well as in the Scott Valley of Siskiyou County. In each case, most of the water percolated into the water table, and the practice had only minimal impact on the crop. The university has studied similar projects in California's orchards, as well as vineyards. Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue says he came to Arkansas to learn about things that aren't specialties in his home state, Georgia. I know about cotton in Georgia. I know about corn and beans and uh, and those kind of crops. I know about cattle and uh, and as a veterinarian, I know about animals, but uh, I don't know much about rice. He spoke with reporters at a roundtable meeting in Little Rock with Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson and agricultural leaders from across the state. We're heading over to talk to the rice people so I can understand the trade and all the things how we can make sure that we have good policies in place for that industry as well. Last year, he saw rice fields in Arkansas that were flooded. Some of that recovered, much of it did not, and they went to other crops. And he was treated to Arkansas rice at the governor's mansion. I like chicken and rice. <laughs> <laughs> My mother, my mother used to make a good uh, chicken rice dumpling uh, kind of dish, and it was delicious. So we enjoyed some of that at the governor's mansion today. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. This time of year, almond growers have it especially tough. They need to get the sprays on to fight brown rot blossom blight, but the weather has to cooperate. So how much distance does a grower need before it rains to apply those products? Rob Kiss of Bear Crop Science explains. When considering 
applications, you have to think about whether or not I can get over it, whether I have varieties that are sensitive to it, but I've got to get my material on beforehand. I mean, it's kind of like putting on a raincoat. You got to put it on before the rain. So you got to have enough time to make sure you get it on. I think that's the most important thing you have to consider. And what role does fog play in any consideration of application of these products? There are some varieties that are extremely sensitive to brown rot. And I have seen in various times when we didn't get any rain and yet we saw brown rot. So if it's foggy and continues to stay, you have stay wet and the uh, the buds have freestanding moisture created by fog, you need to think about protecting them, particularly if you have varieties that are sensitive to them to uh, brown rot, such as buttes. And now, a musical masterpiece. Everybody loves oranges. Oh, oh, yeah. Jumping, jumping. that something? Yeah. Okay, well, everybody may love oranges, but there will be a lot fewer of them in this new year. In fact, production's been going down for several years as growers of them are painfully aware. The U.S. Department of Agriculture just came out with a new forecast for this year's production. The USDA's chief economist, Rob Johansson, gave us the overall U.S. forecast. We're getting California data coming in as well as Texas data, but looking at that coupled with our Florida survey work, we see the all-orange crop for the U.S at 3.99 million tons. Um, that's a little bit up from from last month, uh, 0.2% only, uh, but down 20% year over year. The California crop should come in at 46 million boxes or about 1.84 million tons. That would be down 9% from this last season. The Texas crop, though, up 11% from the last forecast was made and uh, 34% from last year. But it is Florida, of course, that produces the biggest share of oranges. And as you may know, things have not been going well there for several years. Production's been dropping. And as in anything in life, when things seem to just keep going downhill month after month, no new then can be seen as good news, and so it is with the new USDA Florida orange crop forecast. Our total of boxes of citrus estimate for oranges is 46 main boxes unchanged from last month. Unchanged. So Mark Hudson, Florida State statistician with USDA Statistics Services, things are still bad, but they at least haven't gotten any worse. Uh, that's something. 46 million boxes, though, still a lot less than in years past. Compared to last year, we're down 33%, and if the year before that, 28%. So it continues to decline. But this year, because we were hit with Irma, we have a high record drop. Irma and Citrus Greening doing a number on orange groves. More than half the developing orange crop has fallen or been blown off the trees. No change in that since last month. That's something. Another bright note, that Arctic wave earlier this month did reach into northern citrus areas, but growers took protective measures. And no reported damage. And again, no news is better than bad news, right? Everybody Uh, But no music is better than bad music. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Coming up this Wednesday, January 31st, the California State Board of Food and Agriculture is hearing from Delta stakeholders. They want to know about the importance of Delta agriculture, agritourisms, and concerns about environmental restoration efforts. The meeting will be held from 10 a.m. to 12.30 at the Old Sugar Mill at 35265 Willow Avenue in Clarksburg. All meetings are open to the public and attendance is welcome. Jensen is Sacramento's Commissioner of Agriculture. 
She recently spoke to the Sacramento County Board of Supervisors about the state of agriculture in Sacramento County, including a report on all the tasks that the Sacramento County Agricultural Commissioner's Office is responsible for. Among those is weights and measures. And although my report is entitled The State of Agriculture in Sacramento County, I would be remiss if I did not mention the other important consumer protection responsibilities of our department. This slide illustrates some of the various weights and measures inspections that we perform to ensure that Sacramento consumers get what they're paying for. So we test gas pumps for meter accuracy and signage requirements as well as responding to complaints. And we check scales ranging in size from tiny jeweler scales to the large vehicle scales and everything in between. So if money changes hands over that scale, we inspect it. Measuring devices such as electric, gas, or water meters. And then finally, the price verification inspections where we check the scanners to see that they are charging the advertised shelf price. So in 2016, we had an almost 94% compliance rate, which is, that's really good. We're well within the state norm. And next time you go to the grocery store, maybe you better check that sales receipt a little bit closer. Jensen noted that of the over 20,000 products checked for barcode price verifications, 18.5% of those inspected had overcharges. Expected slower growth in dairy cow numbers and milk per cow means lower production estimates for milk both this year and next. That's one takeaway from USDA's latest dairy outlook. World Agricultural Outlook Board Chair Seth Meyer says from a price standpoint, while there was no month-over-month -month change in all product price categories for this year, for 2018. We've kind of revised down product prices, so cheese, butter, nonfat, dry whey, and of course that's going to spill over into lower milk prices due primarily to weaker demand for dairy in the first half of next year. However, we expect that lower production of milk to catch up in the second half of the year and to bring those product prices and milk prices back up a little bit for the second half. So we expect there to bottom out somewhere in the second quarter and then start to rise for milk prices at the moment. Currently, USDA forecasts the all-milk price for 2018 at $16.20 per hundredweight, down 85 cents from the previous month. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Have you heard about biochar? We're going to be talking about a soil amendment that may save you a lot of money when it comes to fertilizer as well as improving the soil. What is biochar? How long has it been around? Let's talk with Milt McGiffin. He is a, an extension specialist down at UC Riverside who has been studying biochar for a long time. And he's addressed a lot of farmers, including recently in the Central Valley, about its benefits. And Milt, let's talk about some biochar basics. What exactly is it? Well, that's a good question. Biochar is produced by burning something that's high in carbon, usually some waste product. Only you don't exactly burn it, you, you make it into a charcoal. So when you make charcoal, if you if you burn a fire, you give it plenty of oxygen so that you get a lot of heat back and it burns quickly. When you do that though, the fire will eventually go all the way to ash and all that carbon that's in it goes off into the air as carbon dioxide. When the trick to making charcoal is you starve it of oxygen. So when you do that, you're going to give it some heat, and you might do a little bit of burning to get the heat up, but uh, you start of oxygen, and you get a chemical decomposition of it so that you hopefully end up with something that's pretty much pure carbon. So if you're talking about what people think of as pure biochar, you what they would give you as a description of it is basically pure carbon. So it's going to be sheets and sheets of carbon, very similar to graphite in structure. And for the untrained eye, they might think it's charcoal. 
Yeah, sure. It's, it is a type of charcoal. Not all charcoal is biochar, but biochar is a type of charcoal. That's so, exactly right. So basically, this is uh, slow-cooked uh, dead trees, if you will. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, they make it from, from sewage. They make it from all sorts of carbon. It's basically, you just need something that's got a lot of carbon in it. And then you need to go through uh, the process we call pyrolysis, which is what I just described, where you're heating something with no or very little oxygen in it. Biochar has been around for centuries. How did they do it way back when? Probably Mother Nature's been making biochar for a long time. We just didn't see it that way. Um, if you think about it, fire is a big part of our ecosystem out here in the West. The Midwest has very deep, black, rich soils. Some of that's because they had grassland growing there, but some of that's because the grassland burned and it went into a form of carbon that's persisted in the soil. So biochar itself has probably been around a long time. But then you invent the airplane and people start flying over the Amazon and you realize it's not this uniform sheet of green, that there's some places that are a lot darker and greener than others. And when they saw that, they then sent in some agronomists into the jungle and they started digging soil pits because, you know, it's what soil scientists do and started to look at the soil. The areas where they were dark green, you could see that that they're black and that the soil's just black for like six feet down or more. If you dig it in the other places where you didn't have this dark green, you got a typical tropical soil where it just is a very thin layer of topsoil and then it's, you know, very light colored on down. So something that happened in those areas of the dark green, um, the natives had done something a long time ago. And the native peoples, what they'd done was they buried, you know, they did slash and burn agriculture. So you've got a lot of, you, you slash down the trees, you put them in a big pile. And you try to burn them. Well, it doesn't burn completely because they're, you know, it's wet in the Amazon to begin with, and you've got these green trees. So you basically went into pyrolysis with a lot of that. You made a lot of charcoal, and then they just incorporated that back into the soil. The natives then, the Native Americans then died off because of the diseases, but they left behind that charcoal. And so those areas became overgrown with vegetation as they're wont to do in the tropics, and the vegetation flourished in those particular places. So then when this, the soil scientists went down and dug in, what they discovered was that these were man-made, obviously had a lot of charcoal in it, and it was something that the natives had done you know, maybe 500 years or more, maybe, maybe even thousands of years before they had dug these pits to check it out. So whatever the natives did, uh, it persisted for a long time, and it greatly increased plant productivity. And that's basically the origin story most people give for biochar. It turns out, though, that a lot of cultures have used charcoal in agriculture for a long time. There's even a, uh, it's like a, from two, 200 years ago, there's even a U.S. publication, U.S. government publication on using charcoal in agriculture and all sorts of things. The, China, the Japanese have used it for a long time. It's, it's been around. It's been used. We may not have understood it all that well, but we did have it. So American farmers are a little late to the party. And you, as you said, the biochar improves the soil. It doesn't break down like compost or commercial fertilizers will. So from a, the aspect of the farmer who's looking to save money, there's a money-saving benefit right there. You're going to have a very nutritious soil at less cost. Yeah, it's and it's, it should persist for years and years after that once you put it in. In the talks that you've given to farmers, what are their questions about biochar? What are their mo what are they most interested in? Well, we started doing this ten years ago. It was mostly just this is biochar. This is what it is. Over time, that's evolved, and within the last five five years ago, I would say their questions were more: Where can we get this? 
and what would it do for us and what would it cost? And that's probably where we are now. They're more, although I think now more of them have settled onto, they've just kind of accepted what biochar is. And it's a matter of debate for them whether it fits in with their operation. A lot of them are looking to put in these units themselves. And they're, um, I think the NRCS actually will give you a, a tax break if you do that. I think they subsidize it to some degree. So um, there's, there's, there are possibilities there, there for that. And so it's, it's changed over time. The farmers are curious, what's it going to cost me? When am I going to get back from it? But they seem to have a fair amount of knowledge about it at this point. What sort of soils would benefit most from an application of biochar? I would think that it would raise pH, so it would be most beneficial on a very acidic soil. Yeah, the most obvious things in acidic soil. Now, biochar has evolved over time. At one time, it was there really wasn't much post-process. So you just you would just make charcoal, and that was it. They basically say you're charcoal. Now there's a lot of post-processing with it. So you can get biochar that's neutral or pH adjusted or what have you. And so for our soils, you can get around that. But as far as soil types here that are going to improve, be improved by it, I would think a lot of ours are simply because they're low in carbon. That's always been a thing um, with us. And trying to raise the carbon content is difficult because most of the things we put in the soil don't persist more than a few months because it's warm and we water the soil and they, get, they just get chewed up by the microbes. We're talking to Milt McGiffin, Extension Specialist at UC Riverside, about the benefits of biochar. But there may be some drawbacks. When we come back, the possible problems with using biochar on the farm. We're talking with Milt McGiffin. He's an Extension Specialist at UC Riverside, a specialist on biochar. He's been talking about the benefits of agricultural use of biochar, but there is the possibility of some drawbacks, including the translocation of harmful gases to plant roots. There's been different studies about gas evolution by biochar, but I, I don't know of anything that's quite like what you described. You must be referring to a particular study. So what study is it you must have read? Uh, the study I did take a look at before um, we started our chat was from the University of uh, Illinois Urbana-Champaign, where they did a study called Using Biochar as a Soil Amendment for Sustainable Agriculture. Okay. And they point out that in their summary that, yes, there is a lot of value to using biochar, especially as far as saving money on fertilizers and improving the soil. But there may be, and they weren't positive on this, but there may be some chemical contaminants that biochar usually contains small amounts of phytotoxic and potentially carcinogenic organic compounds, such as PAHs, which I believe are polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. Therefore, a full environmental risk assessment is necessary before widespread adoption for biochar as a soil amendment can be recommended, according to their report. That's the only time I've ever heard somebody say you need a full-scale uh, risk assessment of, bio, of biochar. The truth is we're kind of heading that way with fertilizers in general anyway. You could get you could get certain contaminants depending on what you make biochar from and how you're making it. Generally speaking, it's not been much of a problem. Like I said, if you do get biochar from someone, it's not going to be pure carbon or what we would think of as pure biochar. Uh, by law in the state of California, if you want to sell – you want to put – on your bag that this is biochar and you want to sell it to somebody that way, it's got to be at least 60% carbon. So then technically the rest of that could be ash and the ash could have a variety of different things in it. It would really kind of, 
we really mostly depend on what the feedstock was and then how you how you made it. The ash also could be good. Um, things like potassium. You do the potash test. The reason it's called the potash test is it goes back to the old days when they got potash from wood ash. So that extra ash in there could add a lot of potassium to your soil, but it wouldn't be biochar. So you might have those problems, but beyond that, that's really out there as far as it having a, a, a toxic, uh, you know, an effect like that. You could make it in theory from feedstocks where maybe you had a lot of painted wood or something like that, and I could see you would have a problem. But otherwise, we really haven't seen that. One source of biochar that has a lot of promise are the millions of dead trees we now have in California's mountains due to the drought. And, of course, farmers are always churning up old orchards to plant new orchards and vineyards. So there's a lot of potential as far as a source for the biochar, isn't there? Yeah, it's kind of a nice marriage because we don't know what we're going to do with all this excess wood. And if you drive through the Central Valley these days, you can see there's places where there's acres of old trees or whatever piled up in just big piles and you can't you know burning's very restricted in the, in the valley these days what so what you're going to do with this waste wood's a good question and then you have essentially a tinderbox up there in the sierras because you have many dead trees from the years of drought they're hard to get to they can't really lumber them out apparently they're not good for lumber or at least the cost to take them out is prohibitive so the idea of turning all that into biochar is very attractive as well and and then there's the other thing that most any of the other waste methods of, of doing something with wood, you're eventually it's eventually going to end up as being carbon dioxide, and that, of course, contributes to global warming. So with biochar, it's a way of converting the wood into something that would actually help the soil and also sequester carbon for a long, long time and take it out of the atmosphere. Using biochar would, of course, be a sustainable practice. Is it an organic practice? Yes. There, there are, you would, everything you use, the short answer to is it organic or not is you need to talk to your certifier because that's really the person that whoever's certifying your field is the one that's going to make that determination. But there are a number of biochars that are registered with OMRI and with the USDA uh, organics program. So you would want to work it out before you start using it, whether it's acceptable practice. But there are, there are ones that are perfectly fine for use in organics. And a lot of organic people I know do use it. Is there much resistance to biochar from uh, the government or the National Resources Conservation Service? There's a number of people in both of those agencies that are doing things with it. We have a very good person in the, uh, in the governor's office named Mike McGuire that does a lot of things with biochar and has been very helpful to us. Um, we've worked with uh, NRCS people on biochar. They have not given it a ringing endorsement, that would be fair to say, and they've not included it in the Healthy Soils Program. To them, they, they feel it's still a little too risky. It hasn't been proven enough. To me, it's been used for centuries. It's as uniform as compost is. So to me, to me I would just rate it pretty much the same as compost. That it, um, as far as safety of practice, that it, it's going to depend on who's making it and where you get it. But if you follow reasonable procedures, it's going to be fine. And we know that it has very good benefits for the soil. So to me, it should be included in that group. But um, it is new for us. We haven't been using it very long, maybe a decade or so. So I, I kind of get it. But they have worked with us at different times. The problem we have in getting a lot of the answers people want for it as far as production agriculture is just funding. And that's that may be the, the thing we would have with them is that they don't include that in their programs generally. We just It's hard to get funding to do field studies with it. Are you optimistic about the future of biochar in California's farms? Yes, for the simple reason that there's only so many ways you can dispose of 
organic waste. And when you start doing the math on how you're going to dispose of this waste, uh, where you're going to put it, are you going to contribute to the greenhouse gas problem or are you going to decrease the greenhouse gas problem? Biochar starts looking pretty good. It may be a while, but it does look good. We are seeing people do it. We start seeing people getting the, the equipment to just do it right on their own farm. If this ever got subsidized by the government as something to use, you know, maybe subsidize it under a greenhouse gas reduction program or something like that, it would really take off. The problem with it is there just isn't a lot of money. That's that's basically where you are. And that's generally true of all the waste products. You don't see a lot of research and other things in, in the compost either for that simple reason. There just isn't a base of funding to do it. But when you start doing the math on logically, what are you going to do with these waste products? Biochar stands up really well. We've been talking with Milt McGiffin. He's an extension specialist at UC Riverside. I think we'll call him Dr. Biochar. (laughs) Jeez, that's lovely. (laughs) He's optimistic about the future of biochar as a soil amendment to decrease fertilizer use as well as improve the quality of soil, and uh, it has a a bright future. There's a lot of sources uh, for information on biochar, but probably the best clearinghouse for all of them is the International Biochar Initiative. So if you just Google IBI or International Biochar Initiative, you'll eventually come to their webpage. They have a lot of white papers. They review the scientific literature every month. Uh, They have experts on there. They do webinars. Uh, If you join and become a member, you get access to the webinars, things like other things that other people don't. But there's a lot of free stuff there, too. So just by doing that, you'll find them. There's a number of other sources on the web, and, and I do a biochar blog, which anybody's welcome to join in on. Probably going to IBI is your best one-stop shopping place for information on biochar. Milt McGiffin, thanks for a few minutes of your time. My pleasure. Anytime. And if anybody wants to reach me about any of these things, um, you can find me on the internet. My email is very simple. It's just milt at ucr.edu, and I'm happy to talk to you anytime. Back in the 30s and 40s, music was different from today. Grocery shopping, much different than today. Stores did all the work for you. You just told them what you wanted, maybe not quite like this scene, in which classic comedian W.C. Fields, store owner... Morning, Mr. Fitzmiller. ...encounters store customer... I want 10 pounds of kumquats, and I'm in a hurry. Kumquats. Uh, how, how do you spell it? C-U-M-Q-U-A-T-S. Oh, yeah. C-U-M... Q-U-A-T-S. Quats. Quats. Two quats? No, one quat. (laughs) In those days, uh, you told the store folks what you wanted. They pulled the products from the shelves, bagged them, and either gave them to you at the store or delivered them. Then came the supermarket, and we were pretty much on our own. However, with the Internet and mobile phone technology, it's possible we could be going back to the past with online grocery shopping, click and collect, and home delivery. Uh, Many other types of retailers are adding these systems, e-commerce systems, growing those types of sales, and many people are taking advantage of that. But in the grocery business... There's not a lot of inroads in terms of e-commerce into the grocery sector. Mark Matthews with the National Retail Federation, and indeed the percentage of grocery sales by some sort of e-commerce is almost microscopic. Yeah, it's tiny. Agriculture Department Research Economist Abby Okrent says at last count, e-commerce grocery and beverage sales were only one-fourth of one percent of all the grocery sales in this country. couple of possible reasons. First, Abby says it's not cheap or easy for a food store or chain to offer e-commerce choices for consumers. There are definitely large fixed costs involved with setting up an e-commerce division. And another private retail researcher, Greg Busick, told reporters at a National Retail Federation briefing that before food stores jump into this with both feet, they have to ask a lot of bottom line questions. 
Where do I find the extra labor to handle that part? How do I change my business, lower my labor costs in one area so that I can do the stuff that my consumers want? But how many consumers actually want it? The Retail Federation survey shows 86% of U.S. consumers still buying most of their groceries by going to the store, even when the store does offer online ordering. We asked Abby Okrent, why has this been slow to catch on with shoppers? She says, survey show shoppers are afraid of spoilage of perishable items and those kinds of issues when they order online, but also... Food is sensory, you know, and so when you do it online, it takes away all that touch, feel, smell of the food. And the newer, larger stores have added many things to attract people into their stores. Restaurants, cooking demonstrations, tastings of foods and beverages, and evidently that strategy is working at least so far. You may remember at the end of August, Amazon merged with Whole Foods, setting up all kinds of possible ways for customers to buy products. Abby says it's a big experiment. And I I, kind of wonder how that's all going to work out. Will it revolutionize grocery buying and selling, or will it flop? We'll see. How about Oh, dear, we're back to that again. This is Gary Comquat, uh, I mean Crawford, reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. In California, they're grown mainly to act as a windbreak or to attract beneficial insects. But elderberry plants also produce fruit, and the University of California wants to learn if elderberries could succeed as a crop. UC researchers have planted elderberries at four farms in the Central Valley. They're assessing farm practices and the market potential. Elderberries are now used in jams, syrups, wines, and liqueurs, but most commercial production right now is in the Midwest. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at kste.com.